Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Before we get things kicked off, we're going to take a quick break and hear from the sponsors. If you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise today by visiting VetCheckForPets.com, which again is VetCheckForPets.com. All right. So we're going to jump into today's conversation. I'm happy to be joined by Andrew Langdon, founder of VetWorth. Andrew is a CFP and fee-only financial planner, serving veterinarians locally within Georgia, but also virtually around the country. He's a member of the Independent Veterinary Practitioners Association, or IVPA, which we'll get into, and a member of the Veterinary Financial Advisor Network, or VFAN, which is also something we'll <laughs> chat a little bit about. Yeah, Andrew, thanks so much for coming. Excited to have you here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Isaiah. Obviously, and, happy to be here. Yeah, and having someone from Georgia in person for an interview is fun. And so tonight, we're recording this on the 10th of January. So tonight is the UGA, so University of Georgia versus Alabama National Championship game. And Andrew's obviously supporting uh, the Georgia Bulldogs. And so we'll see. We'll either be in a really exciting night or another night of heartbreak. For, part two, yes, yeah. of national championships. Yes, even part two of the year too. Yeah. yeah. So with that, I was like, hey, Andrew, are you coming to Indy? Do you want to come record a podcast? And graciously enough, was able to get him to come in. And I wanted to start with a question that I get a lot, not only on the podcast, but just in person, which is, how did you get involved in vet med? Why is there something wrong with you? Why do you want to work with veterinarians? Like I get that question a lot and people are like, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think it seems that weird, but tell me a little bit the origin story and maybe why the focus on vet med. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess it kind of goes back to when I started my independent firm was February of 2020, sort of three weeks right before COVID hit. But, and you are probably familiar too, Isaiah, there was a, a big kind of industry shift on Maybe not industry shift, but there's definitely a growing focus on finding a niche of who can you help, who can you add value to, because you can't be all things to everybody. And I kind of recognize that and trying to create efficiencies within my own business and also trying to find someone who, or, you know, type of individual and profession that I work with well, VetMed kind of came up with in determining who is kind of my ideal client. So I definitely want to focus on an industry of people who were passionate about their work, but also who needed help too. So I don't have any affinity to it, obviously. I know that. Ashley, I think his wife is a veterinarian. Same with Dan. His wife's a veterinarian too, correct? We're the two weird ones that don't yeah. have the spouse of <laughs> veterinarian, so that's normal. I get it. So yeah, it kind of fell into place just doing research and always kind of had a draw to me. I don't really understand like the reasoning why, maybe subconsciously, but a lot of people focus on doctors in the financial planning space, and that's not really who I wanted to focus on. But 
having someone with sort of specialized knowledge like that, who I would be able to help. And that's kind of where vet med came into play. And you know, I read the, I think it was two years ago, the Merck study, which kind of opened my eyes a little bit to the veterinary profession and kind of the tribulations that they're experiencing in that one of the glowing stats for me was over 50% of veterinarians under the age of 45 would not recommend the profession to their peers. And the two overwhelming reasons are high student debt and lower income. So I thought, okay, well, that's a way for me to, I mean, a lot of people go into veterinary medicine for the passion of working with animals, not necessarily for the prospect of making a bunch of money. Yes, that can be a possibility, but I like the passion they had around that. But the fact that over half of them under 45 would not recommend for their peers for financial reasons for the most part, that's what kind of where I gathered and, okay, I can add value here, kind of be a beneficial factor to helping them get out of that and helping them realize, you know, vet med is still a good place to be. Absolutely. And I think that's a great story and understanding of like what is super important because obviously we both see it like veterinary medicine is exploding, right? There's so much demand for that in the communities that veterans are at. And like any practice has been like, we're at capacity. We're so busy. And it's like, well, shoot, if you have so much demand for your services and the finances don't align, like there needs to be some sort of change. I think we'll see that over time. But what has been kind of the hardest part of switching to being very niche specific? And then what has made it worth it? I think those are kind of two different questions. But I think even within vet med, sometimes people that want to maybe specialize or do something different, they're nervous that they're going to push people away. And so from your standpoint, with your business being vet med only, have you seen that transition happen? So it's actually been very positive. The conversations that you have, particularly when you have more and more of them, like when somebody calls or emails, whatever the case may be, you kind of know like 80% of what their concerns may be just based on the industry affiliations and kind of commonalities that they have there. And of course, there's always going to be a little bit of discrepancies and different types of planning needs that they may need depending on others, but you kind of have an idea. And so it helps create not only efficiencies in your business, but you understand some of those issues. And so you can empathize with them. Like, yes, I understand a little bit what you're going through. You know, here's what somebody else has also experienced. Here's what they did to help with that issue. And so there's, it's kind of a creates more like a tribe, if you will. And so people like are able to help others and kind of having just those connections too are beneficial for really everyone involved. Absolutely. Did you have other clients that weren't veterinarians at first that then you kind of had to say, hey, this is the direction that my business is going? And how did those conversations go? So my practice right now is probably half veterinary. So I still have the majority, I would say probably 90% of my new clients are veterinarians. But the clients that I had prior to with some of the same conversations that I've read about, it's I still try to do a very good job for them. Yes, they may not be in the veterinary medicine space, but there's still some people who I can help and I have relationships with. When I told them, you know, I'm kind of focusing my marketing shift and who I'm going to be working with are veterinarians or individuals in veterinary medicine. It wasn't so much of a, okay, I'm going to go find somebody else. It's like, well, can you still work with me? And the answer was yes. So right now, it's probably just under half of my business is still people outside of veterinary medicine, but definitely focus moving forward is the veterinary space. Awesome. Yeah. And again, if they're going to be like, you did a really good job for me. I really like working with you. There's a reason why I chose you. Like, can I still be a client? I think that's important. Yeah, those are the conversations I've had and they've been very positive as far as. Awesome. What do you view as the major challenges that veterinarians face from a financial perspective? Again, going back to kind of the Merck study and maybe just in the conversations that you've had, I see it probably similar to you where same conversations are coming up. But when you think about big financial challenges, what typically are you finding in conversations that you have? Yeah, I think Really, the first one is kind of obvious. I mean, student debt is, that's a reality for most veterinarians. That's just something that's going to come with the space of becoming a veterinarian. So finding a plan for that student debt and realizing that doesn't have to be a hindrance to other future goals. Yes, it is something that you have to deal with, but there are a myriad of ways that you can structure that to kind of improve your financial situation, as well as use excess cash flow for other goals that you may have. And so 
that's obviously when I, when I talk with vets, that's their primary concern is what am I going to do with this? Am I going to be paying these till I'm 75 kind of deal? Will I be able to retire, travel, whatever the case may be. Another one financially related is disability insurance. If you work for a corporate practice, yes, you do get some sort of group disability plan. But for some of these specialized vets or emergency vets, you know, they're making very good incomes and 60%, depending on what you're trying to insure, a lot of times isn't enough. So it's kind of a, what's the plan for that? How much insurance do you need? And obviously, no, no one in our network, the veterinary financial advisor network sells insurance, you know, fiduciary fee only, but it's certainly a conversation that needs to be had because I mean, your income is your greatest asset. So how are you going to protect that? Particularly when you have 30 plus years of working years ahead of you, what are you going to do in the event something happens there? So those are the two kind of bigger ones that I've seen for veterinarians kind of how to structure that and how does that play into other other factors? The disability one to me, I want to unpack that a little bit. What do you feel when you see, okay, I have it with my, maybe my employer, AVMA, personally owned. How do you kind of help guide someone through those different decisions? Sure. The group one's obviously very important. It may not be, I mean, it's a group policy, so it's sharing risk across like a lot of individuals, but it's also much cheaper than trying to insure 80% of your income by paying out of pocket. But they're typically very good, decent policies that will cover you in the event of, again, a long-term disability. The AVMA policy is good too, because it's also a kind of a group plan. So it's spread across a bunch of other individuals as far as how that risk is divided. The individual policies I like though, because they're not tied to an employer. So they're portable and they can come with you. You can also add different types of riders and things to those. So I think having a combination of group disability policies, as well as an individual policy that can be portable to go with you that you can add on if you have future increases in pay. A lot of group policies I've seen have maxes. And so if you're earning a good income and your max, the group disability is $10,000, well, as your income increases, they're not allowing you to purchase more. And so you're kind of handcuffed, if you will, in that regard. So the individual policies a lot of times come with future increase options or other types of benefits that allow you to increase as your income increases too. So I think it's good to have kind of a combination. I totally agree. And just the idea of having a policy that is specific to you, that as long as you pay the premiums, it can be changed. Group policies can be changed. Now, do I think the AVMA is going to screw all the veterinarians in the country? No. But again, there's always that risk of a group policy drastically changing. And it might be at a, an opportune time for you as an individual. And you're like, ooh, this is no longer exactly what I want. So I think a combination approach of saying, these are all good. We'll try to make sure that you get the value plus what is the cost. I mean, right. it's always going to be the thing is I always tell people, I hope disability is like money down the drain, right? You never need it, but the times that you do, you want to make sure that it's worth what you have. So right on student debt, again, it's been extended again. Do you think student debt ever gets paid again? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but the thought process with student debt, I think a lot of people are nervous to say, oh, well, I can't own a practice or I can't buy a home. I can't do this or that with student debt, which isn't necessarily true. How do you, I guess, help them feel comfortable having that debt there? Obviously, there's a big financial component too, but there's, when you see that number on a piece of paper and you're looking at, let me call it $300,000 in debt and if you want to incorporate that into your net worth, you have a pretty large negative net worth. It's There's definitely a behavioral emotional thing to that as well of, okay, I'm seeing this go up, maybe not now with no interest being accrued, but when it does accrue, you can see that you know, that value continues to rise depending on the type of payment plan you're on. So there's a big hurdle there, both obviously from a financial perspective, but behaviorally as well, kind of how do you view that debt? I don't think it can be too much of a hindrance because there are different, obviously, if you're on federal debt or federal program, you have different income-based plans. And so if you're going toward forgiveness, you have to realize that that debt, yes, it's going to continue to rise. You just don't look at that figure because you know that in 20 years it'll be forgiven. They have to plan for that tax bomb at that time, obviously. Even like practice ownership, a lot of banks, they'll kind of eschew that student debt 
when calculating the credit worthiness of an individual, whether they're going to offer them a loan. So some people may think I can't get into practice ownership, which comes with higher incomes and things like that, an opportunity to build equity in a practice. They look at student loans as I don't want to take on additional debt in that way, but it's two different types of debt. I mean, the business debt itself is for practice ownership is secured by the practice itself, whereas the student loan debt is completely separate. So they don't look at those in the same regard. And the same thing with a home too. The home is backed by the asset, which is the property itself. So just two different kinds of debt, but I don't think that should be any sort of hindrance as far as going into some of those other, I guess, opportunities to take on additional debt, but certainly needs to be included in the conversation. For sure. Talking about private practice ownership, I continue to hear from those in the industry, sometimes those that are older, sometimes younger, that everything is going to be consumed by corporations. And there's no opportunities for private practice. When you hear that, what is your initial response and kind of how do you view that? I think just because the way the trends are going, that can kind of seem to be that way based on a percentage scale of practices that are now corporate owned, that's been increasing relatively exponentially over these past five to seven years just for the amount of practices that are being bought up. When I think about it from like a consumer's perspective, consumers want the ability to have the choice of who they want to work with. And so corporate practices are doing a pretty good job of kind of relaying to the public that they're trying to, guess, say that it isn't independent. You know, they're not changing it to VCA. They might keep the same name, kind of disguising the fact that it's corporate owned. But I think there's always going to be a place for independent practice to be an owner, whether that be in like a single doctor practice or multi as well. But I think the consumer wants choice. And I think that they like the fact that you have the ability to go to a corporate owned practice or a private owned practice. And let's be honest, there's a lot of practices that corporates don't necessarily want to own. There's kind of a sweet spot that they have of what they can turn and make efficient as well as, and that's kind of where it kind of goes for us when you think about a niche. If you're a veterinarian who has some sort of niche or specialty, exotic animal, whatever the case may be. You can kind of carve yourself out sort of separate and not be a small animal practice that's competing with the same hospital down the road, too. So there's ways to differentiate yourself. Again, if that is something that you're interested in doing, entrepreneurship's not for everybody. But I do think that there's a future for corporate-owned practices and private-owned practices to live mutually beneficial together. Absolutely. Again, I think using us as an example of two small business owners, right, from that standpoint, and what we are striving for, who we're serving, conversations that we have, like. Yeah, we're not going to be Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or UBS or these other big names. We're also not trying to be those big names. Like right. there's just a different approach. And some people might gravitate to those names for a variety of reasons. But for a lot of people, they want the choice of saying, oh, I actually like this smaller business that is doing something very different from how they're serving me as the end client. And so there's a lot of similarities there where, yeah, you don't have to be a mega corporation to, to still be wildly successful. Your role with IVPA, talk a little about that, why it's important. I've not had anyone talk about them at all. And just a quick reminder, Independent Veterinary Practitioners Association. Tell me a little bit about what they're doing and the role there. Yeah, so it's an organization that champions, again, private practice ownership. So uh, our independent practice ownership. And again, I don't think that they're also trying to buck the trend, if you will, of corporate practice ownership. I think it's showing or highlighting the value that these two types of structures can live together. They don't have to be one or the other. It's not us versus them. There is a place for independent practice ownership. And so it helps to, again, kind of provide that community for independent practice owners or employees of independent practices to kind of help either with that succession planning, either go into certain percentages of current employees to buy into the practice to eventually sell to another independent owner or even helping things with like benefits. How do you provide group benefits for some of these 
smaller practices that might not be able to do so. So you group those together and that helps with employee retention. It also helps with marketing. So that's a good organization, again, kind of championing independent practice ownership, why it's important and why there is still a place for that in this growing trend of corporatization. So I just did an episode with Ryan Koopmans about questions for financial advisors, wealth managers, all, you know, whatever term someone puts on their business card, right? One question that I always love asking is like, what's a non-consensus view that you maybe you hold versus your peers across the country that are, let's say, CFPs? Is there anything that you think about? You're like, yeah, I think I have a kind of a non-consensus view. Anything pop up? Well, like for the profession, I guess, non-consensus view is, and this may not be completely relatable, I don't love the AUM fee, which is assets under management fee, where you charge a percentage based on the amount of assets they have. I just think that the depending on who you are as an advisor, so if the value you provide is primarily in the investment management, that's okay. For myself, I don't believe that. I think the value I provide is in the entire plan. Investments is one piece of that. So I'm also a member of an organization called the Alliance of Comprehensive Planners, and they are big on kind of flat fee structure and modular planning. So in the past, firms I've worked with have been, okay, we'll do an initial plan. Here's what it costs on a percentage of assets under management basis. Once you send us, move over your assets, we'll present this plan to you and we'll meet every six months kind of deal. This is very much of a, we're going to have five or six meetings, each going to cover one specific topic on every two months. And then we'll give you five things to do and then we'll meet again in two months. So I think that makes it a little more accountable for the client as well as the advisor. And it kind of breaks things up in bite-sized to-dos, if you will. So it's not, here's a list of 25 things we'll see in six months or a year. Like, and we'll see what you've accomplished. So that may not be exactly answering the question, but non-consensus view, I just tie your value to what you're providing and your services and your fees. So if you're not, like for myself, my greatest value add is not through investment management. So I'm not going to charge based on the investments that I'm managing. It's kind of all encompassing. So I charge a flat fee that's paid monthly. So just a little different, I guess, than kind of how the majority of the industry no, I think that's still a non-consensus view is like, hey, the way that we're going to do planning is going to be different from the structure of how our business operates. So no, I think that's perfect. And again, it's an open-ended question. So I'll ask another one that you may or may not have an opinion on. Those that listen to the show know I talk about Bitcoin, right? So having another advisor, one thing that I've been asked a lot is, hey, can you bring someone on that? And this is not, we did not talk about this prior, right? <laughs> bring someone on that maybe has a different view than you do. I've just, as a CFP, as someone that is feeling that someone that says, hey, planning is the value that I add. I think we align there. And I think Ashley and Dan, again, a lot of planners that are in this space agree, hey, planning is where we're going to add our value. What do you think about Bitcoin? Do you have conversations people ask about it? So I know that you're a big champion of it because I've actually listened to your podcast and read a lot of your stuff about Bitcoin. I'll be very honest. My knowledge around Bitcoin is probably is not where it probably could be or should be. I don't get a lot of questions about it. And this kind of can go off on a tangent, but yeah. I'd love to know your opinion because I know that you've been featured on, on a lot of articles and podcasts, things like that surrounding Bitcoin itself. My biggest thing with Bitcoin is, is it going to be used as a currency or is it going to be used kind of as a store of value? Because my big hesitation, not even hesitation, just if you're going to use it as a currency, but it's supposed to be, obviously it's very scarce in nature and will continue to increase in price. Why would you pay for something today? I mean, there's that story of the guy who bought a pizza in 2010 for, I don't even know how many Bitcoin it was at the time, maybe like $10, which is worth like, I mean, millions of dollars today. So why would I use it today to purchase goods and services if it is, it's going to increase? That's kind of a question I have, but I'm not opposed to Bitcoin, but I always say kind of like individual stocks, maybe limited to 5% of your overall investable assets if that's something that you want to be involved in. But yeah, I would love to get I know your thoughts a little bit, but yeah, if you want to expound. On yeah. That. So the idea of it being used as either store value or currency. So typically when you think about like how something becomes money, and that's why a lot of times when I talk to people about Bitcoin, I say, what is money? And it's shockingly, and I say advisors in general as well, 
don't understand or think about like what is money and you think of like this base layer, like how you see economic incentives drive an economy, like it's money a lot of times, right? Most people are driven by money. We talked about veterinarians, maybe there's a passion, but at the end of the day, still need to feed your family, have somewhere to live, all that stuff. So what you typically see is it goes from collectible, store of value, medium of exchange, unit of account. That is typically the monetization process of something that turns into money. And you can look at the history of money. It's been seashells. It's been wampum. It's been gold. It's been co- it's been metals, right? And then it's moved into like gold backed. And it's been into fiat currency, which is backed by nothing other than the full faith and credit of the government, depending on your views on the federal government and the debt load, all that stuff. What is the faith there? So for me, we're also very spoiled in the United States to have a fairly stable currency, right? You wake up, the dollars that in my bank account, your bank account can buy the same amount of goods pretty much day after day. Well, you look across the world, that's not always the case. And so I think it depends on the use cases where you're at. Do I think Bitcoin ends up becoming a medium of exchange? Absolutely. I was just talking, so we're at the co-working space here in Indianapolis. I was asking the, talking this morning actually about, would the co-working space accept Bitcoin? Just curious, right? Because we've thought about allowing from a business perspective to collect Bitcoin. And then we can then sell it if we wanted to. And the reason being is because I can use free open software and cut out Stripe. I don't have to pay three and a half percent for credit cards. I don't have to pay 30 cent per transaction. I don't have to pay one and a half for an ACH. So that extra money for a small business is huge. Your favorite coffee shop, your favorite restaurant. You can look at it from that way of just using Bitcoin the rail and not necessarily using Bitcoin the asset because there's the network and there's the asset. So I look at it as it's happening. It's going to come slowly. It can't go from zero to, hey, it's money that we use every day without volatility, without growing pains. Like again, it's 13 years into Bitcoin. Think of it as an adolescent. Like when you grow up, like it's not a linear growth, right? You're going to go through bumps and phases. So I guess that would be my answer. But again, I'm very convicted on where I think this is going, which is why I talk about a lot. I think everyone needs to make their own decision. I think the 5% allocation makes sense for a lot of folks. And again, for me, it's not, I'm not advocating 100% of everything. And I think that's where people lose some of the conversation I have, it's like, it's not all or nothing. You can own both. You can be a really good dynamic financial planner and still be pro-Bitcoin. You can still be a veterinarian and have a little bit of Bitcoin and that's totally fine. Or you can own none and that's okay too. Like it is a personal decision. But for me, I think the education just still needs to get there because there is a lot of people out there that have a vested interest for it not to succeed. And so they will put out content that's not necessarily factually correct. And I can absolutely agree with that. And yeah, I do think there's definitely a place for it. I would never personally oppose anybody if they wanted to purchase Bitcoin or get it. I would never oppose that. If they were going to say, I'm going to take, I have $100,000 in savings. I'm going to take 50,000 and put it in Bitcoin. That would be a conversation. I'd probably be like, okay, this is all of your savings. Maybe you don't want to do this at this time. But if you want to do, I know you've mentioned kind of doing maybe like a $5,000 lump sum and then dollar cost average additionally, as you move forward, that's perfectly okay. I would never oppose anybody to do that. I will say one thing, and this isn't Bitcoin, but maybe cryptocurrency overall in general. I have a co-working space too in Petrie City, Georgia, where I'm from. And I have seen a lot of people, I would say probably four in the past like two months, because there's a day trader in my office. People have come up to him saying, I'm going to start trading crypto. I'm going to get into the Shiba Inu coin. And so it just seems like there's a lot of, and this, I don't mean to sound say rude, but people who are uneducated in the space who think there's a lot of money to be made. And so that kind of cautions me a little bit of who are the players in here and kind of where they're, you know, you're very convicted. Obviously, you're very knowledgeable about it. You've done a lot of education around it. A lot of these people have not. And so I think there's a tendency or maybe a possibility for people to lose a lot of money because they might not have that same education background. So that's where I get into like the kind of five or 10%. Like, I don't want you to think that you can become an overnight millionaire by putting $50,000 in at one time. That's just kind of where some of my hesitations with that come in for everyday people, if you will. Everything you just said, I totally endorse and agree with because 
That's why if anyone has listened to me at any amount of time or if I write about something, it is Bitcoin and then crypto is separate. I view crypto as a lot of VC backed investing, which is going to be most of it's going to go to nothing. And there's going to be some projects that will do well. I don't think similar to like the AUM thing you just talked about. I don't think I'm going to be able to analyze all these crypto projects and pick the right one. I just had a call non-veterinarian on our team. Just someone said, hey, they want to talk about crypto. Will you come on the call? And so half hour, 45 minutes talking about all this stuff. Right. And at the end of it, I just told her. Bitcoin should be like the hurdle rate. It should be the thing that you measure everything else against. And that is pretty simple. You can buy it, hold it, self-custody, like do these different things. And you can free up your mind to then go work and create income versus trying to go out and pick which one. And at the end of the day, you might still underperform and get blown up. So I completely agree. Most people should not be doing that, which is why I advocate for Bitcoin only because Bitcoin is very different. If you look at the origin story, again, it sounds like quasi-religious almost, but it is the immaculate conception as far as how it was created. There's no... VC backing. There's no founder that governments can lean on. It is for the people, by the people, completely outside of this idea of raising funds and having a marketing team and all this other stuff where most of the projects you hear about today, 30, 40, 50% of it is actually backed by VC firms and they end up dumping it on retail. And that's exactly what happens. So that's not always the case, but I agree with you. A lot of people right now see it and say, hey, there's something going on. There's something weird. There's a lot of money to be made. Maybe I can do that too. And that's akin to buying lottery tickets or doing other things versus saying, I fundamentally understand what this could be. And if I have a long time horizon, this can then maybe grow in value and help me out. So Yeah. And I think the decentralized finance has a big future too. I mean, even in the US, there's a large population that are unbanked. They don't have bank accounts. And so there's reasons for that. But if you can kind of eliminate some of that, I do think there's a lot of value to be added there too for some of these immediate transactions and not having to go through some of these you know, middlemen, if you will, and requiring, there is a, definitely a future there too. Yeah. And there's a lot of really interesting things and in that have been written. And again, I was not trying to turn this into a completely Bitcoin, but I just felt like that you were the right person to ask because you may or may not be getting questions, but you know, people look to, I think us as CFPs to be say, Hey, you talk about money stuff. Like what's your opinion on this? Right. And I would share the opinion on the crypto caution tale there. But from a Bitcoin perspective, you look at places where, whether it's in Palestine, whether it's in Iran, whether like places where you can't have a bank account or can't have access to things. It's like, again, we're very spoiled here, but there is a human social element to what Bitcoin can do because it is completely trustless, permissionless. You do whatever you want with it, right? It's money for friends and foes, right? Right. Venezuela is not a great place. And their dictator has taken over a lot of Bitcoin mining and has basically taken that from their people. Same with North Korea and Russia, right? Not great places, but maybe are going to be looking at Bitcoin, Iran, same thing. Bitcoin does not care. It's math and code. So it's going to be used by people that you like and people that you're like, ooh, they're bad. And so depending on how you want to read an article, I could publish an article and be like, look at all these terrible people that are using sure. Bitcoin, right? But it's like, well, it also is helping the person that is impoverished and is just trying to save enough so they can feed their family the next week. And to your point, like that are unbanked. And that's unbanked here in the United States. It's unbanked across the world. So it'll be interesting. Again, it's not something that I think people should own to say, hey, I'm going to get rich quick. I don't have to work anymore. Like I'm hoping for a pop and I sell and then I'm going to go buy Lambos in the oceanfront property. Right. That's never been, been the thought process on my end, but it is something I think can play a role. And people have heard those conversations, but you know, I appreciate you being open to kind of chat through it. Yeah. And like I said, my knowledge is clearly not to where yours is around. I can sense your passion when you talk about it, which is great. And again, that's where it kind of goes to that 5%. But I think for a lot of people, particularly in veterinary medicine, that can be sort of like a big component of it. But utilizing your education, your skills to either increase your income potential at your current place, become a practice owner, build equity in a practice, whatever the case may be. I think there's a lot of value to be maybe direct resources there too that might be pay off better in the future. 
Absolutely. What's a topic that maybe I haven't asked about yet that you think is really important that you would want to kind of either riff on, share, discuss, ask questions? As it relates to veterinary medicine, a lot of veterinarians I speak to, I think that there is a, and I think student debt is a big hindrance to this, but there's a hesitation or sort of a thought process of maybe you might be kind of stuck where you are. And I don't like that aspect because they're becoming a lot more entrepreneurial opportunities. It doesn't, you don't have to be an independent practice owner. You can do locums work, you know, relief vet work. And I heard Ashley talk about with his wife, she's now, she's like director of innovation with vet. So even within veterinary medicine, you don't have to be like producing or working within, you know, on that clinical side too. There's so many different options that are available to you for entrepreneur minded vets. And I think that there is a, just maybe either hesitation to kind of pursue that because you don't want to do that with such high debt, like you're comfortable where you are. But I think that there's a lot of options that should be explored for that because it does increase your income potential ability to build equity in something that you're building yourself to create some of that work-life balance that you're wanting. It's not always going to be perfect, obviously. I had a conversation with a veterinarian who's uh, oncology. So she's a specialist in oncology and she's doing locums work because she wants to be able to travel. So she's going to Hawaii for 18 months and she's already got another contract, I think in Arizona for the following 18 months, but she's built that into, Hey, here's what I kind of want with my contract. You know, as far as taking time off and being able to travel and getting paid for this, there's a lot of complexity surrounding that, but she has kind of made that to kind of fit what she wants. And I think there's just a lot of hesitation that comes from the conversations I've seen of, can I do this? Is this a possibility? I don't really know. I want veterinarians to understand that, yes, there are different avenues you can go to if that, again, is something that you're interested in, particularly for those who have that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Absolutely. I completely agree. And even just like the idea of veterans getting out of clinical work and doing consulting or building a brand and having, you know, shoot, think about whether you want to do a podcast, and have sponsorships or something like that, right? Like you can build out other income streams to allow you to have freedom and flexibility. And going back to conversations and presentations that I've done, it's like veterinary medicine is like in this golden age right now. And it can be, and it can be a really amazing place where going back again, even to the Merck study, you can get to the point where people are going to recommend it as a career because you can still make a good amount of money to live and accomplish all the goals that you want, but you're not buried behind things. And yes, affordability for college and education like that is something that we might not be able to solve. We can help on the other end, but there's going to be a lot of things done to meet the demands of the consumer out there that is saying, hey, I have these pets. I need care in this area. And it seems like there is just such a good opportunity to be able to move around, do whatever you want and kind of build the lifestyle. You don't have to go to the same practice every day, right? And right. you don't have to feel like I'm so burnt out because I'm working crazy amount of hours. So there, there's good opportunities. I think also veterinarians should feel like, I think in the past maybe is like, you should be thankful to your employer that you have a job. I think the tide is shifting a little bit where the employer should be thankful to have you on their staff as a good veterinarian. And so I think you can leverage that to for contract negotiations or you know, if you do need to increase time off, whatever the case is for mental health, physical health, you can incorporate that because if, if they want you, they'll find a way to keep you. There's a lot of different options out there now for veterinarians and you're not necessarily held captive to that same practice. So I would say use that to your advantage, obviously being able to know your worth and communicate your value. But I think that's a good opportunity for veterinarians as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. For those interested in connecting with you, learning more, tell us about where to find you, any content, things that you want to share with the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a sort of financial education content only site. It's called The Entrepreneurial Vet, but it kind of breaks it down to different topics of financial topics, which are really just strictly about financial education, just learning a little bit more about how the tax planning tax code works and just entrepreneurial opportunities, insurances, things like that. So that is entrepreneurial-vet.com. Yeah, VetWorth is my financial planning firm, and that's vetworthfinancial.com. But uh, you're happy to have any conversations. 
I know through the Veterinary Financial Advisor Network, I have a lot of conversations with vets who maybe, you know, maybe a financial planner right now is not something that's what they need at this current point in time, but they definitely need help. You know, one of the things that I've experienced in previous work was working with people who were kind of already accomplished some of their goals. They might be 65 retired and they have a million and a half in the bank and they definitely have a need for advice as far as like tax planning and things like that. But they're not necessarily in the case of, okay, what am I going to do with all this debt? Or how am I going to structure my finances? You know, I graduated two years ago. I feel like I'm all over the place. They need that structure early. And maybe a financial planner is not their best option, but maybe a financial coach is. And I know that you had Megan Landris on the podcast as well. She's in Georgia too. So I've referred a lot of clients to her through the student loan planning. She has financial coach services too. So don't think that you have to, again, just because you don't have assets, don't think that you can't get financial help. There are different, a lot of different myriad of options available to you. But I'm happy to have any conversations with, uh, with anybody who, who has questions about that. So. Absolutely. And it's funny when you're talking about financial coaching and Megan's first name. And I'm like, oh, yeah, she's in Atlanta, too. So that's a great place to be from the standpoint. If you are local in the Atlanta area, you have some great resources. But also, like we talked about at the top, the ability to work virtually with technology to, it makes it great where you can go on and say, hey, who's the right fit for me? I think that's the big thing that we've tried to do with VFAN is say, hey, here's some different options, different personalities, different styles. People think different things. Find someone that you fit with. Talk right. to a handful of people, interview them and see who works. And Absolutely. I think that's been kind of the beauty of that platform. So with that, thank you so much. I'll let you get running. I can never cheer for Georgia because I'm a diehard Florida Gator fan, so, but I'm not, I don't want to see Alabama win again. So I'm like, I'll watch it. Hopefully it's a good game. I'm tired of spending money. I'm coming to these games. So yeah, we need to win one so I can stop spending so much money. Yep. No, it was great. I, I appreciate you having me here. It was great to be in studio too. First time in Indianapolis. Love it. So Awesome. Take care. Thanks, Isaiah. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.